Uh, before we pray, we've got a, a little bit of, of uh, family business to take care of. Um, how many of you were here last Sunday? Just raise your hand. Yeah. Say more than half of you. Well, last Sunday, we, um, by the way, we're finishing up 1 Peter today, um, be the second half of chapter 5. And last Sunday, um, the, the text was chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And the, the, the heart of the passage was to, uh, to Pete, for Peter to exhort or encourage pastors and elders to do their job, to uh, shepherd the flock of God, um, eagerly, willingly being an example to the flock. And, um, and uh, great, pas- great section of Scripture and as I was um, finishing it up last Sunday, um, I, gave, um, I gave an exhortation to anybody that might be um, looking for a church, people that are new to our church, or maybe people are, that are on the way out from our church. I gave them a, an exhortation. I said, if you're looking for a church, make sure they do two things. One is, is they preach the Word of God. You remember this? And two is, as I said, I said, make sure that they have a plurality of elders that operate in equal authority, in unity, in differing giftedness. And I said it in a way that was actually pretty prideful. I'm, I'm very, um, the reason that, that we have the model of eldership that we have here is because we, um, we see it in God's word. Um, but there are many other very, very, very good churches in northern Colorado. Some of you have come from them as you've moved to Colorado. And I feel like in some way I demeaned um, these other churches, that I somehow discounted them, that if they don't operate in the same way we do in our plurality, that they're, that they're, they're less valuable. So um, I really I felt there's pride in that. I'm happy what we do here, but I don't want to impose that on another church that might see um, their a polity, if you will, their, their structure of leadership as less than biblical. So can I just, uh, just right up front, just please um, ask for your forgiveness. Thank you for that. Let's pray. God, I just uh, thank you that, um, that uh, you came to seek and save the lost. And I thank you, God, that uh, even though um, we have been perfected in that we have been clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. And Father, you no longer see our sin, but you see the perfection of Christ in us. Lord, that we are, uh, um, me right at the front of the line, are very much imperfect. And I thank you, Lord, that the work that you've begun in us as your children, that you are bringing to completion. That one day we will be perfect in that there will be, um, we'll be out of this flesh. Uh, there will be uh, Satan will be put away once and for all where he can no longer tempt us. Where there will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain, no more death, no more sickness. And God, I thank you that, um, that while we're here on this earth um, awaiting your glorious return, that you are patient with us and that you are kind and that your forgiveness um, is, uh, is as far as the east is from the west, that you never tire of us, that you constantly care for us. 
I'm so grateful that um, even in the midst of, of pride and temptations, Lord, that you have forgiven us and that, that, that we can move forward without any guilt or any condemnation um, by the power of the Holy Spirit standing um, in the firmness of our faith. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, um, as I feel like there's just uh, so much in this last section of Scripture, God, I, I pray, I, 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 I cast my anxieties upon you, and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would accomplish whatever it is that you want to accomplish in the people that you brought here today. God, I pray that you would just accomplish your, your work and that we would leave here um, knowing you in, in a deeper, more intimate way, more resolved to love you and to, um, and to live our lives in uh, full submission to you. And I love you, God, just to pray for this time. And God's people said, amen. All right, so uh, today's passage, we're going to finish up the, uh, uh, Peter's first letter. And I want to just give you a quick review. Even though Peter was writing to first century believers that resided in Asia Minor, that this letter is for us. It's for us. It's for every believer um, from the beginning of time until Jesus comes back in every nation. We titled this sermon series, Living Hope. I don't know if you remember that or not, but that's, that's the name of the sermon series as Peter has encouraged his readers, you and I, over and over again, everybody that bears the name of Christ is that we have a sure and lasting hope. And that hope is, is, um, is never fading, um, that there's nothing that can take it away from us, not trials, not Satan, nothing can take it away from us. And when our hope is placed in God's promises, it fuels holy living, obedient living, even in the midst of hardship. And Peter started this letter reminding us, his readers, of God's saving grace and that, that, that this living and lasting hope that these truths produce in the life of the believer uh, will be sustained only by standing in God's grace and remembering His promises and His character. In fact, he starts his letter out by focusing on everything God has done for us and everything that He is doing for us by His grace. And then, finally, then after reminding us of that, then He instructs us. Then He tells His audience to live holy obedience lives, obedient lives in the midst of hardship. You see, He gives us indicatives before He gives us the imperatives. He gives us the facts of who God is and who we are in Christ before He tells us how to respond. Because if, we, if He doesn't give us the, the indicatives before the imperatives, it's nothing more than moralism. Let me read, if you would flip open your Bibles, I think it's going to be on the screen, to the very beginning of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Listen to, listen to these um, indicatives. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. He tells us right up front an indicative. An indicative is, and this is that we are His elect, that He chose us from before the foundation of the world. And another indicative here is that we're exiles. An exile is, is somebody who is, is residing in a place that is not ultimately their home. And so we are, we are God's chosen people living on this rock called earth awaiting our final resting place. 
which is going to be glorious. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then, after these indicatives, all throughout the first few chapters of this letter, then he acknowledges our hardship and he calls us to holy living. Then he tells us that we are grieved by necessary trials. Then he tells us that we are going to suffer for doing good, that we're going to suffer because we're Christians. He's gonna, he tells us we're going to suffer at the hands of the government, suffer at the hands of unjust employers, that there's going to be suffering in marriage. And then he tells us how to respond in the midst of suffering how to live obedient lives in the midst of suffering while keeping our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, keeping our eyes fixed on our sure inheritance. And as you flip over to chapter 4, as he starts to wind down his letter in chapter 4, he, he gives a compassionate plea to those in his audience who are suffering hardship. And I really appreciated what, what Chris said or he, he prayed, is that everybody here um, at some level, at some time, it's going to experience hardship. And it doesn't mean just the big things. It's not, it's not going to always be cancer. It's not going to always be the death of a loved one. But there are little nagging hardships that we all experience in this lifetime. Jesus says, in this world there will be trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So Peter says in, first, in, in, uh, in, in chapter 419, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will don't let, that, don't let that slip by. Those who suffer according to God's will, that's all suffering. Think back to the book of Job. There's no suffering in our life. There's no pain in this world that doesn't go unnoticed by God and that he, he could stop it if he wanted to. All suffering is by his will. It doesn't mean that he's the author of sin. He isn't. It doesn't mean that he takes a pleasure in suffering. He doesn't but he lets us suffer according to his will. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter says, therefore, knowing God's kindness and salvation, knowing his faithfulness to his promises, you can trust him even in the midst of suffering. He didn't say just trust him and shut up. He says, I want you to know the love of Christ. I want you to be reminded of his kindness. I want you to be reminded of his grace and his mercy. In the midst of hardship, do good. Live holy lives because you trust him, your faithful creator who caused you to be born again. Last week, as I already mentioned, we looked at the, at the uh, responsibility that God gave pastors to shepherd the local flock of God. Pastors are to feed, we're to care for the body, we're to protect the local flock eagerly, willingly, and being an example to the church. So today, as Gary read, we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 6 through 14, but I want, to I want to step back and look at the second half of verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5, which will bring some additional context to today's passage. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And this passage has always bothered me, because I know that he's writing to Christians, He's writing to believers, and, and everything I see in Scripture is that God doesn't oppose Christians. We were, we were His enemies, but we're now His friends. We were far off, but now we've been brought near. 
But Peter says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I believe Peter's primary emphasis here. Yeah, when we sin, when we're, when we're in sin, it somehow um, hinders our relationship with God. Positionally, we're always His children. But, but relationally, it, it ruins our relationship. Just like in a marriage, like I'm always Nancy's husband. But when I sin against her, it, it, it ruins our relationship. So, so yeah, God does oppose us when we're proud in that way, but not, He doesn't oppose us in an enemy kind of way or an opponent kind of way. So I believe Peter's primary emphasis here, emphasis here is that there is more grace to be had and enjoyed for Christians when we humbly submit to God's good and perfect plan for our life. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 5, verse 3. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed or blessed literally means happy. Do you know as Christians that we are supposed to be happy? Happy. What's that song? Anybody know that song? Happy. I, I do happy feet. That's my era, Steve Martin. Steve, Steve Martin. <laughs> blessed literally means happy. The worldly idea is that happiness is found in riches. It's found in prestige. It's found in abundance. It's found in leisure. It's found in things like that. And those things certainly can bring temporal happiness, right? It's, it's God's common grace. But lasting happiness, lasting um, blessedness, is found in humility when we are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit literally means lowliness. It's the opposite of self-sufficiency. This speaks of the deep humility of recognizing our utter spiritual bankruptcy apart from God. It describes those who actually are conscious of their own frailty, weakness, and hopelessness apart from God's grace. The only way to have lasting happiness is to have growing humility. That's the only way to have lasting happiness. You see, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Most kingdoms, you climb the ladder. Most kingdoms, you get to the top by pursuing success. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. The way up, the way to the top is through lowliness and humility, suffering and eventually death. Think about we've got to die to one day, to die on this earth, to one day um, live to receive our crown, our reward, our inheritance. This was the way of Jesus, and it's the way of his followers. Take a look at Philippians 2. Paul says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, after he humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Back to our passage today, verses 6 and 7. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore. Since God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, therefore, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. 
the, the way, the, following the way of Jesus, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God is the road to receiving more grace. The mighty hand of God in the Old Testament is a symbol of the power of God working in the lives of mankind, accomplishing God's sovereign purpose. And as Christians, when we receive hardship and suffering, we're not to fight against it. We're not to fight against it. We're not to fight against his sovereign hand, but but we're to humbly submit to him even when it brings us to trials and suffering. And this is going to be, this is hard at many levels, I know. But no matter matter what you're going through in this life, no matter what God has for you, his mighty hand is always at work accomplishing his purposes on behalf of his beloved children. And what Peter's describing here is humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God means submitting to God. That's what it means. What does it mean to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God? It means submitting to Him. Whatever He has to you, to submit to it. I was thinking about this, that that we can humble, we can only humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and entrust ourselves to Him because of who He is, because of what He's done, because of His kindness, His mercy, and His grace. And it says that that He will, will, at a proper time, He will exalt you. He will lift you up out of your trouble. It may not be the time that suits you, but it will be the proper time. And we may think that the proper time to end this ordeal is now. Please, God, end end it now. You may feel like you are sinking, but know that God will raise you up. It may be in this lifetime, but for some, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, who's been in a wheelchair for 50 years, is that God, I guess he could lift her up out of that wheelchair, but she knows, if you ever hear her testimony, that one day she will be lifted up, she'll be exalted, she will run, she will dance. She'll do things that she hasn't done in 50 years. So it might be in this lifetime, as with Job, but it will certainly be at the end of this life, at His glorious return, when we receive our inheritance, our crown, the reward that Jesus has earned for us. God will lift up His suffering, submissive children in His wisely appointed time, in none other. In the midst of hardship, when we're being humbled, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The question isn't, are you going to be humbled? The question is, is are you going to respond humbly? In your suffering and humiliation, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. While you're suffering, while you're being humiliated, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. We cannot resist His mighty hand. He is working His goodwill and purpose out in your lives, and He uses suffering and adversity in our lives to purify us and to sanctify us. It's in these hardships that we know His strength and that we know His sustaining grace while we await His perfect timing to lift us up. Some of you have experienced that. It's in the midst of hardship. That, that everything in us wants to exalt ourselves. I know when I'm in the midst of hardship I, and somebody has wronged me, I want to defend myself. I want to get even in our, in our marriage. I want to get even. I want to I speak back. God humiliates us. He brings us low. 
so that he can prove himself strong and raise us up at the proper time. He humbles us by his hand so that we can humble ourselves under his hand. He humbles us by his hand so that we can humble ourselves under his hand. Every one of us has or will be humbled by God. The question is, how do we respond in this humbling? When I'm rebuked or wrong, I have a choice on how to respond, and so do you. I can choose to dismiss the rebuke, or in humility, I can respond differently. I was thinking back through different times in my life, in my, in my prideful life, when, when people have had the, the guts to confront me on something. Maybe, maybe Nancy confronted me um, in front of the kids. I can't remember, but I guess I know I've confronted you in front of the kids. But there's, there's, been, there's been times where I've been rebuked that, um, and, and I, could, I, can, I can dismiss it. I can say, you know what, yeah, you know what, they don't know what they're talking about. I can dismiss it. I can strike back. Or in humility, I can do this. I can forgive the offender. I can thank the Lord for the offense because it came to me by His will. I can ask God, what do you want me to learn from this? And number four, I can ask God, how do you want me to respond? You see, that's humility. There's been times where I've been rebuked, where, where it's like everything in me wants to rail. But there's something in me that, that it's, it's God's spirit in me is what it is, that the next day when I ponder on it, I go, thank you, Lord. I needed that. I would have not have saw that blind spot in my life if that person did not rebuke me. You see, we can be humbled without humbling ourselves. And we won't fully experience God's sustaining and strengthening grace until we humble ourselves under His mighty hand. And Peter gives us a practical way of doing that. It's in verse 7. He says, cast all your anxieties on Him. To cast literally means to throw overboard. It means to, to cast your net, to get rid of it, to, to, to get rid of the, the heavy load. You see, and the more hardship we experience, the more we tend to worry and control our environment rather than humbly submitting ourselves to His good and perfect will and just casting those anxieties on Him. When we have hardship, when I have hardship, hardship of most any kind, it will tend to drive us to a place of anxiety where we try to do everything we can to work our way out of the hardship without humbling ourselves before Him and forgiving the offender, thanking God for the offense, asking God what He's trying to teach us, and ask Him how He wants us to respond. When you cast your anxieties on Him, you are entrusting yourself to Him. And you are submitting yourself to Him. Psalm 55, 22, the psalmist says this, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. Watch it happen. Cast your burden on Him, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. God gives us the burdens and the hardships so that we can cast them on Him in order to experience His sustaining grace. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 12? Paul has pride welling up in him. The living God appeared to him. People are getting saved left and right. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. And Paul says this in, in verses 7 through 10, chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, 
a thorn was given me in the flesh. It's God's will. God gave him a thorn in his flesh. We're not sure what that thorn was. It was a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Interesting that it was given to him by God, but God used Satan to give it to him for God's purposes and for Paul's best so that Paul would would not be conceited. Verse 8, three times, Paul said, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. God, please take it away, take it away, take it away. And that's okay, that's not sin. If you're in hardship, you can beg the Lord to remove it. But God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I can just picture Paul pondering that. Going, hmm, I've got to live with this the rest of my life. But I get to enjoy an extra measure of God's grace and His strength. So he responded this way. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, in my hardships, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, I am what? I am strong. And then Paul again in Philippians 4, 5 through 7 And you know Paul has struggled with anxiety himself. He says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Cast them to God. He's our burden carrier. And then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, the extra measure of grace and strength will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we hang on to our anxieties, when we don't cast them to Him, that's when that anxiety uh, just continues to destroy us from the inside out. Jesus is our burden carrier. And folks, I know this is easier said than done. We're, we're not robots. We, we feel. We feel pain. And it's natural to want to escape from that pain. But we'll, we'll, we will only be able to cast our anxieties upon Him when we have a proper understanding of who God is and His love for us and His care for us. It's hard for me, I don't know about you, to entrust myself to anybody unless I know that they, they care for me, that they have my best interest in mind. And Peter reminds us in this passage, he says, cast your burdens, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for us. And all throughout the book of the, the letter of 1 Peter, Peter reminds us over and over again that God cares for us. He says that we are his elect. We are being guarded for an inheritance. We are His children. We are His people. We are united in Christ. Our our lives are united with Him. We are secure in the ark of Jesus that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That Jesus is our chief shepherd and He will return for us. That we are God's precious possessions. He cares for us. The psalmist in Psalm 40 says this, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. Did you know the Lord takes thought of you? No matter what's going on in your life, that He sees you. He takes thought of you. We, brothers and sisters, we can burden Him with our burdens because He cares for us. He wants us to give them to Him. With that said, though, we don't cast our anxieties upon Him so that we can live carelessly for the pleasures of the world. 
when you are free from the anxieties that weigh you down, we are more able to joyfully obey Him. When we're free from anxieties, we can walk in holiness. When we're anxious because of hardship or the potential of hardship in our life, we become controlled by fear and we start losing hope. And this is actually the strategy of our real enemy. He wants us to be focused on our lesser enemies. He wants us to be focused on people. He wants us to make other people our enemies. He wants us to think that our hardship and our trials are enemies. Verses 8 and 9. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter tells us that we do have an adversary. And it's not our hardships. It's not our trials. It's not even the people that cause our hardships and trials. We have an adversary. The adversary is the enemy or the opponent The devil, Satan and his demons are our adversaries. Satan is God's arch enemy, but he's also our enemy. Our primary aim is to, his primary aim is to cause us to doubt God's care for us. You want to know what he's doing when he's prowling around? He wants to cause us to disbelieve God and to cause us to believe that God doesn't care for us in the midst of our trials, that he doesn't forgive us. You did it again, Hardy. How can God keep forgiving you over and over again? Most of us, if you're like me, think a lot about Satan. And therefore, we leave ourselves open to an invisible opponent who is very real in this world. Peter describes the devil as a roaring lion who prowls around, seeking someone to devour He is the enemy of holiness, and he's the enemy of hopefulness. Peter calls him our adversary, and the word adversary literally means an opponent in a lawsuit, an accuser in a court of law. You see, Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. He studies our nature. He is the the best prosecuting attorney that the world has ever known because he knows me. And he knows you better than anybody outside of Jesus Christ, outside of the Father, outside of the triune God. He's not omniscient. He he can't read our minds. He's not everywhere. That's why there's demons. But he prowls around. He lurches down, and he knows you. He knows what pushes your buttons. He spots our weak points, and he attacks us where we are least able to resist. He pursues us just as Pharaoh did the Israelites. He roars after us like prey that was once in the lion's den but has now been rescued. He is constantly prowling around, pursuing and looking for an opportunity to strike. Make no mistake about it. And then Peter gives us an encouragement right at the... uh, At the end of verse 9, he says, knowing this, knowing that that the enemy is out there, that he's prowling around, he's looking to devour, he's a liar, he's an accuser, he's a a deceit monger. Peter says this, knowing that the same type of suffering is being experienced by your brotherhood all over the world. You see, Satan is at work in every believer, has been all the time since the garden, 
in the same ways. The suffering that you're experiencing as a result of Satan's torment and temptations is not unique to you. Christians from every walk of life in every corner of the world throughout the history of the world are suffering the same. And sometimes we can get discouraged because we think that we're going through something that is unique to us and can cause us discouragement. The enemy likes that, by the way. Paul speaks to these common temptations that causes discouragement in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul says this, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. In other words, every temptation that you're experiencing is common to somebody else. Satan, Satan is, um, he uses the same strategy over and over again. No temptation is overtaking you, but, but, that is, uh, but that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Peter tells us how to prepare at the, at the beginning of verse 7. Verse, let's see, what verse is that? Verse 8, he tells us how to prepare for the devil's attacks and how to fight the devil when he tries to pounce on us. First of all, preparation. Peter says, be sober-minded and watchful. If you're not sober-minded and watchful, you're not going to recognize him. You're not going to recognize the enemy. Sober-minded means to be self-controlled. Sober refers to self-control as it pertains to intoxication. Here, Peter's referring to a sobriety of spirit, ordering our lives and disciplining ourselves to avoid the intoxicating allurements of the world. Success, comfort, happiness at any cost. Success, comfort, happiness isn't bad. It's when we pursue it at any cost. I was thinking about this this morning. I went to bed last night in the, um, I think it was the top of the eighth inning, Rockies game and um, Atlanta Braves, and Rockies were up 5-3, to three. and the first thing I, I woke up with on my mind this morning is I wonder if the Rockies won. And there's a part of me going, well, that's, that's okay, but really what should be in my mind is, is this, <laughs> is this, and, and recognizing that, that the enemy is a real opponent, and there's nothing more that he'd like to do than for me to operate in pride. And for me to make the, the small things of the world the, the big things. So one of the ways that for, for me and you, I believe that we can be sober-minded and self-controlled is, is to think about what's on our mind when we wake up. Paul says this in Philippians 4.8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What occupies your mind? What do you think about most of the time? I am okay. I'm going to think about, I love thinking about the Rockies, actually. And it's not a sin. But when, but, but when I'm occupied by it, if I, when I'm, I'm, I'm drunk with those thoughts rather than kingdom thoughts, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to miss the enemy sneaking up. So after he says, be sober-minded, he says, be watchful. Peter spoke these same, uh, Jesus spoke these same words to Peter when Peter fell asleep and he wasn't ready for temptation ahead. Listen to Mark 14, 37 through 38. Jesus was praying, right, the, the night before he was betrayed, and, he, and he, then he came and he found them sleeping. He'd asked them to stay alert, stay awake. He came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, if we're not engaging the spirit, if we're not aware of Satan and his attacks, he's going to have a day with us. So, so don't check out. Don't become cynical. Make, make no mistake who the real enemy is. It's not the person causing your suffering. Our enemy is God's enemy. He is stealthy, he is sneaky, and he's deadly. He's a liar, he's an accuser, and he's a deceiver. And I say that out loud. In Ephesians 6, Paul says our battle is not against what? It's not against flesh and blood. Remember Nancy and I went to a marriage conference and they, and they said, look at your spouse and say this to her. You're not my enemy. You're not my enemy. The enemy's the enemy. Yes, the enemy uses people, but people are not our enemy. And then after he tells us how to prepare for the inevitable attacks of our enemy, Peter instructs us on how to respond to the attacks. So after the enemy attacks us, how do we respond? Here's how we don't respond. Satan, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. Nowhere in Scripture, I'm sorry, does it say that. If you think about Jesus, the times that he was tempted, how did he resist Satan? He quoted Scripture. He quoted Scripture. He stood firm on the truth. As a child, I went to a Catholic school. And these nuns were bigger than life. You know, they had the big white thing and the black and like long, dirty fingernails. And that's, that's what I remember. They really didn't. They were rather sanitary and they were nice. Um, except when they smacked me with the ruler and, and put axle grease in my hair. That's what they actually used when I had longer hair. And I remember these nuns being larger than life. But I remember going back and, and, and seeing these same nuns as I was an adult. And they're like little harmless ladies. There's, you know, I, I grew. I, mean, I don't think they shrunk. They might have shrunk. I grew. And, and they, they weren't so big. Let me contrast that. In Prince Caspian, which is the second book published in the Chronicle of Narnia series, C.S. Lewis reminds us that there is an important exception to this rule. The rule is, for most of us, is that when we're smaller, everything is big. And then when we grow up, those, uh, the houses we lived in aren't as big as we remember them being. People aren't as scary as we remember them being scary. When the, when the children in, Nar- uh, in Narnia were, were lost in Narnia, seeking to find the way into Prince Caspian's camp, Lucy experiences a personal visit from the great Aslan. As Lucy encounters her old friend, she perceives him to be somehow bigger Then she remembers him from past experience. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that is because you're older, little one. And she says, not because you are. He says, I am not. But every year you grow in maturity, you'll find me bigger. And that's how we resist Satan. When he pounces on us, and he will pounce, even if you don't know it, you resist him, and you stand firm in the faith, is what Peter says. And the way to stand firm in the faith is to know the lion, is to know the lion of Judah, to study him, 
to know his care for you. As we grow in our faith and understanding of God's care and loving kindness, the Lion of Judah becomes bigger and we're more able to then resist the roaring lion who's looking to destroy us. In verses 10 and 11, and we'll be finishing up here rather quickly. Peter says, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we're suffering for a little while, does it? It really doesn't. I know that. I know that for a lot of you. You've got suffering because of illnesses. You've got suffering because of relationships. But I think Peter's heart here is that this, this life that we're living, it's a dot on the line of eternity. No matter how long it feels here, it is just a little while. And he says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, that one day you'll be with the God of grace where there'll be no more hardship, no more suffering. He will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. And I would just encourage you to, um, those four words, there's a, there's a sermon on each word, but it means that he will, he will complete the work that he begun in you. That one day, you'll be out of this flesh, and there'll be no more sin. And then he finishes up with this final, kind of unexpected closing. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. What this is saying is that Silvanus was the messenger. He carried the letter to the church. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. I have written briefly to you. He calls this, this letter a brief letter. He's written briefly to us. The purpose of this letter, he tells us at the end of verse 12. He says, to exhort and declare that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. God's grace saved us from the penalty of our sins. That if you put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, He has forgiven you of your sins, of the penalty of your sins, the penalty that you deserve. Jesus paid that penalty for you, and the guilt of your sins. The other part of the true grace of God is God's grace strengthens us. It upholds us when we fail, when others fail us, and when the enemy accuses us, that we have sustaining grace. And then God's grace will be fully manifest when we receive our inheritance. And he, stand, he says, stand firm in it. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this... I don't know what it sounds like on, on that end, but as I'm reading through the passages, just about in anything that I teach, this truth comes back time and time again, that if, that if you want to live a life of joyful obedience, if you want to have your hope rightly placed in what's eternal, not what's temporal, then we need to stand firm in the grace of God. We need to be reminded over and over again of God's loving kindness, of His mercy, of His grace, that when hardship comes, He will sustain us by His grace, and that one day when He gloriously returns, 
His grace will be manifest. That's the way that we can minister to one another in this body is to remind one another of that truth. Amen? Let's pray. God, I praise you for um, your kindness in our lives. And Lord, in the midst of, of, uh, of hardship, sometimes it's, um, it's hard, God, I confess, to uh, cast my anxieties upon you. And I need to be reminded over and over again of your care for me. And I know that um, everybody in this room could say the same thing, that we need to be reminded over and over again of your care for us. And the greatest expression of your care for us that we'll ever know is in the fact, Lord Jesus, that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but that you emptied yourself. You became a servant. You came to serve us and to lay your life down, to die on a cross. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying so that we can be free from the guilt and penalty of sin. And God, Father, we thank you that you raised Jesus up from the dead and that he now ascended into heaven. And that we know that whatever comes into our life, that nothing slips by our sovereign, loving, and good King. And Lord, therefore, based on your kindness and your care for us, the reminder of that, those truths, Lord, we together say we, we submit ourselves to you. Lord, we desire to walk in joyful obedience, placing our hope firmly in you while enjoying the blessings of common grace that you've allowed us to enjoy. We love you, and we pray these things in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.